Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. And welcome to the Nightcap Nebula podcast, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. No matter what I may have said about humanity in the past, you homo sapiens astound me at every corner. Good. Bad. Tortured. Twisted. Homicidal. Sociopathic. Greedy. Vindictive. <laughs> okay, you get the idea. People are so damn fascinating regardless of the many shortcomings they exhibit. Truly, no joke. The human race has accomplished a lot in such a short period of time, and they are always growing, sometimes in the wrong direction, but it's growth nonetheless. There is a flip side to the hundreds of thousands of years, from the first steps out of the ocean, to being a proud member of the slave wage class, and that is how the wonder of the body has changed so much in that relatively small window, universally speaking. Then again, there is also a hidden part to that side, the anomalies that it displays and abnormalities both inward and outward. Some have been used for entertainment, some for research, and sadly, some end in tragedy. All that said, it shouldn't suggest that it isn't all highly interesting and definitely needs to be talked about, and lucky for you, dear listener, I have the best lined up for you to hear. On that note, buckle up for one wild ride as I take you on the journey of the top five global human oddities of history. Ever have a friend that you were ashamed of having around other people? One that just screamed, I can't apologize enough for his, her actions, and usually don't interact with outside the confines of your home for fear of you becoming a social pariah. Our first tale is definitely about a man named Terer that falls into said category, and spoiler alert, does not have a happy ending. Terer was born in Lyon around 1772. It isn't known if that was his real name or a nickname he adopted in his youth. It is also not disclosed who his parents were, or if they were part of prestige, or if they were middle class, or poverty stricken. What is odd to note is the severe lack of overall information regarding him in general, suggesting that his records were not kept properly, or he was abandoned at birth with his family, not caring to investigate where he came from. From a very early age, Terrer displayed a very troubling behavior that seemed to follow him around for the rest of his days, and that was his need to consume damn near anything he could get his hands on. Soon being dubbed the boy with the insatiable appetite, things only got worse as he got older. When he entered his teen years, Terer was able to eat his entire body weight in food. You can probably guess his parents could not deal with this for very long, and soon asked him to leave. 
Faced with an abruptly new and strange way of life, Terrera had no choice but to stick to brigands, thieves, and charlatans to get what he craved, and this only lasted so long before he found a job working with a traveling charlatan who, with the other performers, picked the pockets of audience members while Terrera, one of their star attractions, did his show, soon being dubbed the Incredible Man Who Could Eat Anything. His massive deformed jaw would swing open so wide that he could pour a whole basket full of apples down his mouth and hold a dozen of them in his cheeks like a chipmunk. He would swallow corks, stones, and live animals whole, all to the joy and disgust of the crowd. He also had a particular fondness for raw snake meat as well. According to a few who were asked to describe his act, they said that he seized a live cat with his teeth, eviscerated and disemboweled it, then sucking its blood, and finally eating it leaving the entire skeleton intact. He did the same to live dogs. He even ate eels without so much as chewing them. It is no surprise that he baffled the medical community and wanted to study him. I believe some probably regret that decision to go through with that after what I will reveal next. At 17, he weighed just 100 pounds, and although he ate live animals and trash, he seemed to be sane. He was seemingly just a young man with an inexplicably insatiable appetite. His body, as you might imagine, wasn't a pretty sight. Terrera's skin had to stretch to incredible degrees to fit all the food he shoved down his gullet. When he ate, he would blow up like a balloon, especially in his stomach region. But shortly after, he would step into the bathroom and release nearly everything, leaving behind a mess that the surgeons described as fetid beyond all conception. When his stomach was empty, his skin would sag down so deeply that he could tie the hanging folds of skin around his waist like a belt. His cheeks would droop down like an elephant's ears. These hanging folds of skin were part of the secret to how he could fit so much food in his mouth. His skin would stretch out like a rubber band, letting him stuff whole bushels of food inside of his massive cheeks. But mass consumption of such quantities of food created an awful smell. One doctor said that if you went within 20 paces of him, you would be greeted with an overpowering odor that could not be tolerated. He was also hot to the touch, to where he was constantly sweating that produced another smell that resembled sewer water, and it was visibly vaporous so it would waft to others nearby. During his time in the military, which was more of an experimental role since France had initially rejected him on the front lines, he was subjected to trials and observations to determine the cause of his appetite. While enlisted, he consumed three times the allotted daily rations and even did favors for soldiers in exchange for food. It got so bad that he scavenged through the garbage regularly and reportedly took to drinking the blood of the other patients while in the hospital. One man, though, believed that Terrera could really help his country, and that was General Alexandre de Buhonas. France was now at war with Prussia, and the general was convinced that Terrera's strange condition made him a perfect courier. He had given Terrera a wooden box to swallow, and, in front of the other generals, was rewarded with 30 pounds of bull's testicles and entrails after successfully consuming and excreting the said box later. Bernos gave him another box that he told Terrera was of great importance, but in reality was simply a message to another general across enemy lines to inform him of troop movement. Terrera dressed as a German peasant and crossed into Prussian territory soon, being discovered by townsfolk as he did not speak German. He was captured and brutally interrogated until he finally divulged his mission, producing the box. When the commanding officer, General Zogel, found the useless note, he was infuriated and ordered Terrera to be hung. For whatever reason, however, the general relented and decided to spare his life at the last minute, instead dropping him off outside of the French lines. Losing his nerve to carry out any more of these missions, he begged to be let back in the hospital so that they could cure him. 
They administered laudanum, gave him wine vinegar, tobacco pills, and even soft-boiled eggs to sate him, but nothing worked. He even attempted to eat the bodies in the morgue, and escaped a few times running around the streets to find whatever he could, including fighting stray dogs for carrion. Things finally came to a horrifying end when a 14-month-old baby had gone missing, and it was suspected that Terrer had eaten it. In a fit of rage, the hospital staff chased him from the facility to which he never returned. Four years later, Terrer ended up in a hospital in Versailles where he had been bedridden and weak. One of the physicians contacted Percy, who had overseen the experiments on Terrer in the military hospital previously, and told him of his former patient's condition. When he arrived, Terrer told Percy he had swallowed a golden fork two years prior, believing that to be the cause of his sickness, but Percy had already deduced that the real cause was late-stage tuberculosis. No less than a month later, Terrer had suffered repeated bouts of diarrhea and died shortly afterwards. If the living smells of this man were enough to make a maggot gag, nothing compared to the stench that poured out when he died. The doctors struggled to breathe through the noxious odors that filled every inch of the room. Massive putrefaction was present throughout the body, and his organs were enlarged to the point of bursting. His stomach, they found, was so massive that it very nearly filled his entire abdominal cavity. His gullet, likewise, was unusually wide, and his jaw could stretch so wide open that a cylinder of a foot in circumference could be introduced without touching the palate. The stench was so great, however, that he and the other examiners could not continue and gave up midway through the autopsy. One thing they knew, however, is that this man was not crazy, and many years later, this became a real condition called polyphagia, although most cases are not even close to this one, and there are medical treatments to counteract most of these symptoms, so that no one ends up like this unfortunate fellow. The saying, your eyes are bigger than your mouth, never rang more true, but if your mouth is, indeed, significantly bigger than your eyes, it might be time to schedule a checkup, just to be on the safe side. Children have been the focal point for many issues in the world, with everyone chiming in on how to raise them, what they need, and how to give them proper education. One thing most people can agree on, and that is abuse and neglect, are not only bad, but people that abuse children should be sent to the deepest, darkest hole, never to return. Some cases can be truly depressing and awful, and others, like the one in our next tale, are so unbelievably maddening and pitiful that being called a homo sapien almost feels like a bad thing. The story of Jeannie starts out in an average home in Arcadia, California with middle-class parents. Her father, Clark Wiley, grew up in and out of orphanages after his father was killed in a lightning strike. He worked in a factory as a World War II flight mechanic and continued to work in aviation after the war ended. Originally from a farming family in Oklahoma, her mother, Irene Oglesby, ran a brothel in California during the Dust Bowl. As a young child, Jeannie's mother sustained a severe head injury in an accident, giving her lingering neurological damage that caused degenerative vision problems in one eye. Her father had a lot of resentment for her as mother due to being given a feminine name, which is believed to be the source of his anger. When he became an adult, he changed his name to be more masculine, and his wife spent a lot of time with him, but his fixation on his mother was unhealthy, and it affected his relationship with Jeannie's mom, causing her to become secondary. From the outside, it seemed like a healthy relationship, but inside the home, 
Her mom was beaten frequently and severely, making her already trammeled sight worse and becoming more dependent on her father. Jeannie's dad did not want any children to begin with, but five years in, her mom became pregnant. In an evil fashion, her dad beat and strangled her, attempting to kill her during her pregnancy, but miraculously managed to give birth with no complications. The inexplicable evil continues, however, when her father found the baby's crying disturbing and left it in the garage overnight. She died of pneumonia as a result of the exposure to cold at just 10 weeks old. The awfulness just keeps building as a second child was born and died two days later as a result of either complications from a disorder called RH compatibility, which is a red blood cell disorder, or choking on his own vomit. A third child, John, was born, who also had RH complications, but survived having only mild speech issues, and was raised by his grandmother, then returned to his parents at age four. Five years later, Jeannie was born. Around this time, her father began isolating his family much more. She was also born with the same disorder as her brother, but received a blood transfusion. A dislocated hip made walking difficult at an early age, leading her father to believe that she was mentally retarded, ordering the family to not engage with her. Past this, there is little information about Jeannie's early life, but available records indicate that for her first months, she displayed relatively normal development. Her mother later recalled that she was not a cuddly baby, did not babble much, and resisted solid food. At times, she said that at some unspecified point, Jeannie spoke individual words, although she could not recall them. But other times, she said that Jeannie had never produced speech of any kind, and researchers never determined which was the truth. When a drunk driver killed Wiley's mother in 1958, he unraveled into anger and paranoia. Once he moved into his late mother's house, he brutalized John and locked Jeannie alone in a small bedroom, isolated and barely able to move for hours on end. When not harnessed to a toilet seat, she was constrained in a makeshift straitjacket and wire mesh covered crib. He sometimes led her outside in the backyard in a makeshift playpen. Researchers believe his grief was so bad that he wanted to hide Jeannie away to protect her due to her possible mental disorder. If she got out of line, her father would beat her with a wooden plank, intimidate her by growling, and even stopped clipping his nails so he could scratch her. She developed virtually non-existent verbal skills due to this, a fear of animals, and made no sounds. It got so bad that she masturbated in socially inappropriate contexts, leading researchers to believe her father had sexually abused her or possibly forced her brother to do things to her. For her diet, it was mostly liquid foods, consuming baby food and hot cereal. If she choked or showed disgust, her face was rubbed into her plate like a misbehaving dog. In early 1972, her mother told researchers that whenever possible, at around 11 p.m. at night, she would try to sneak her additional food, causing her to develop an abnormal sleep pattern in which she slept from 7 to 11 p.m., woke up for a few minutes, and fell back asleep for an additional six and a half hours. This sleep pattern continued for several months after she began to receive medical attention and only gradually normalized. Her father also despised noise so much that no TV or radio was permitted in the home. Jeannie's room had no stimuli except for shadows from lights outside that occasionally pierced through the blacked out windows. No one was allowed to leave except her brother, who had to go to school and come right back, often greeting him with a shotgun on his lap and making him prove his identity before entering. More and more of this controlling terror went on until Jeannie was 13 when her mother, nearly blind, threatened to leave her husband and he relented. 
She took Jeannie to Monterey Park, where she applied for disability benefits. Unfortunately, due to her limited vision, she entered the social services office by mistake. It was there that a counselor noticed something off about Jeannie from her autistic appearance to her not looking her age. The police were contacted and her parents were arrested making Jeannie a ward of the state. After being admitted to the hospital for observation and testing, pediatricians, psychologists, linguists, and other experts from around the U.S. petitioned to examine and treat her, for here was a unique opportunity to study brain and speech development. Jeannie could speak a few words, such as blue, orange, mother, and go, but mostly remained silent and undemonstrative. She shuffled with a sort of bunny hop and urinated and defecated when stressed. Doctors called her the most profoundly damaged child they had ever seen. Progress initially was promising, however. Jeannie learned to play, chew, dress herself, and enjoy music. She expanded her vocabulary and sketched pictures to communicate what words could not. She also performed well on intelligence tests suggesting that her cognition was intact, but her social development was so impaired that it made her seem as if her overall demeanor was a result of severe autism when they couldn't be further from the truth. The problem is, it was discovered, after a lot of intervention, the mind can only recover so much, and they determined that Jeannie's growth window shut prematurely between the ages of 5 and 10, making it impossible for to form words into sentences. By 1972, feuding divided the caregivers and scientists. Jean Butler, a rehabilitation teacher, clashed with researchers and enlisted Irene, Jeannie's mother, in a campaign for control. Each side accused the other of exploitation. Research funding dried up and Jeannie was moved to an inadequate foster home. Irene briefly regained custody only to find herself overwhelmed, so Jeannie went to another foster home, then a series of state institutions under the supervision of social workers who barred access to the people she needed to be around the most. Returning to the children's hospital that tried to help her, she regressed so far that she became silent again. Her mother sued the hospital because they felt her daughter was overly tested, eventually settling out of court for an undisclosed amount. While it isn't clear if she was put under too much strain, it raised questions. Was she stunted due to experimentations and too much psychology, or not enough of each? These questions will most likely never be answered, as Jeannie's current whereabouts are uncertain. In 2000, it was said that she was found to be healthy and happy, but this conflicts with other reports. In 2016, she was reported to be living in state care and that her brother died in 2011. Her father passed away in 2022 from diabetes. As of today, Jeannie is rumored to be living in a state-run care home in California, but this is largely unfounded. If she is living, she would be 65 and any living relatives are supposedly dead, leaving her without any family and being incredibly lonely in her twilight years. The hard truth of living is not knowing who you will end up relying on and that can be a petrifying thought, but to be brought into the world with everything stacked against you from the start, and no one to guide you at your most vulnerable should give you a few sleepless nights. Every country has unknowns and biological strangers lurking around every corner. Some have been debunked and outright laughed off the planet, while others, well, let's just say that people have been keeping these things alive through elaborate hoaxes and tall tales. Then you have ones that fit into the middle, with both sides being at a deadlock. Let's meet Australian's own Yowie. The origin of the name Yowie is to describe unidentified Australian hominids is unclear. The term was in use in 1875 among the Kamori people with Yowie 
meaning spirit, that roams over the earth at night. Some modern writers suggested that it arose through aboriginal legends of the Yahoo, which natives describe as a man with long white hair, extraordinarily long arms, furnished at the extremities with talons, and the feet turned backward so that upon traveling, the foot appears as if it is in the opposite direction. All in all, it looks grotesque and monstrously ominous with an unearthly and ape-like appearance. Still, some claim it comes from an old aboriginal legend called the Dreamtime, that these creatures were the original inhabitants of the country, an old race of blacks. In the story of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, the possibility of portrayals of these creatures may have been purely fantasy-driven, but there might have been some liberties taken from folklore. Sightings have been documented as far back as the 1850s, with articles involving indigenous apes appearing in the Australian Town and Country Journal. The earliest account in November 1876 asked readers, who has not heard from the earliest settlement of the colony, the blacks speaking of some unearthly animal or inhuman creature, namely the Yahoo Devil Devil or Hairy Man of the Wood. In an article entitled Australian Apes appearing six years later, amateur naturalist Henry James McCooey claimed to have seen an indigenous ape on the south coast of New South Wales between Batemans Bay and Ulladulla. McCooey offered to capture an ape for the Australian Museum for 40 pounds. According to Robert Holden, a second outbreak of the reported ape sightings appeared in 1912. The Yowie appeared in Donald Friend's Hill and Diana, a collection of writings about the gold fields near Hill End in New South Wales. Friend refers to the Yowie as a species of bunyip, or evil spirit. Holden also cites the appearance of the Yowie in a number of Australian tall stories in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. With sayings and descriptions being varied, there still existed terror mixed with intrigue, and it persisted over the years. Modern sayings have been scattered, but they all paint a different picture of this thing. From 1977 to around 2013, multiple people reported bipedal creatures that attacked their dogs, having no neck, being shaggy, and some have videotaped it, one of the most notorious being called the Piper Film. There exists a $200,000 reward put up by the Queen Bien Festival to whoever can photograph and present a living yaoi, but as you can guess, it has not been claimed. The most current sighting was in March of 2014, where two yaoi researchers claimed to have filmed the yaoi in South Queensland using an infrared tree camera, collecting fur samples, and found large footprints. Later that year, a gimpy man told media he had encountered yaois on several occasions, including conversing with and teaching some English to a very large male yowie in the bush northeast of Gympie, and several people in Port Douglas claim to have seen yowies near Mowbray and at the Rocky Point Range. There has been little follow-up to this, however, leading experts to believe it is a publicity stunt. Some experts believe the Yowie is a bastardization of a marsupial that went extinct by the earliest 20th century and that no one spoke of any primitive ape-man before 1975. Some books have been written on this, such as Bigfoot, The Yeti, The Sasquatch, In Myth and Reality, written by John Napier, who claims it is all lies, with some cryptozoologists claiming sketches of the Yowie in past articles are accurate. However, many say this was inspired by muddled recollections by readers of the newspaper it was published in. But to this day, it is widely accepted in many circles that the Yowie is out there, just waiting to be discovered. Your eyes can fool you and the mind can play many tricks. But keep your wits about you, and try not to get too into your own head. Your reality is scarier than anything fantasy is likely to conjure up.
Strange people are often overlooked in this day and age. But back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was more common to see freaks of nature traveling the countryside, suckering local communities out of their meager earnings for a chance to gaze at the creepier sides of nature. Rest assured, this is not a wolfman or the world's heaviest man tale, because the heaviest man back then is an average weight these days. No, this story is about a man who could be classified as a giant with enormous strength. Let's take a peek at the Goliath, who was known as Angus McCaskill. Angus was born in the hamlet of Sheeby on the island of Burnay Oost in the Sound of Harris, Scotland, but grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada. His father Norman and mother Christina were both very loving parents who had a total of 12 kids, with seven dying at an early age. Before his growth spurt, he had no real issues with people, but that doesn't mean he never got into fights. When Angus was 14 years old, he traveled on a fishing schooner from his town of St. Anne's to North Sydney, and the crew took him along to a dance. An altercation with a dancer led to Angus striking his tormentor's jaw with his fist. The man landed in the middle of the floor and was unconscious for so long, the other dancers thought he was dead. When the captain returned to his schooner, he found Angus on his knees praying that he did not kill the man. Fortunately, he was alright, but I'm guessing the man had no idea how big Angus would get in a year, as he was of average height up until he was 15, when he hit a huge growth spurt, and by the time he was 20, had attained 7 feet 4 inches, eventually reaching 7 feet 9 inches within a year or two. As far as his measurements, they are the stuff of legends. His shoulders were 44 inches wide, the palm of his hands were 8 inches wide and 12 inches long, his wrists were 13.5 inches in circumference, his ankles measured 18 inches in circumference, and by 1863, he was wearing boots 17.5 inches long. His feet were also probably around 16 inches long and 8 inches wide. He had deep-set blue eyes and a musical, if somewhat hollow, voice, and his demeanor was described as mild-mannered and gentle. Despite his off-putting measurements, his frame was actually very proportioned, with people in his town calling him Gilly Moore, translated to Big Boy. They had a few other names they affectionately referred to him as, such as Cape Breton Giant, or simply Giant McCaskill. Most of his early years were uneventful, and he kept to himself, as his size caused rumors to circulate and gossip to spread, which made him uncomfortable, so he avoided church and many social functions, keeping to just working on his family farm and fishing in his spare time. It didn't take long for word to spread of his ability to do what most men could not, even showing superhuman abilities, such as lifting a ship anchor that weighed over 2,500 pounds up to his chest and carry barrels under each arm weighing as much as 350 pounds. He was soon contacted by P.T. Barnum, who wanted to put him in his circus as a headliner alongside Tom Thumb, who was the shortest man in the world. In 1849, he signed with Barnum and for the next five years, he toured all over the world, Queen Victoria heard stories about Angus's great strength and invited him to appear before her to give a demonstration at Windsor Castle, after which she proclaimed him to be the tallest, stoutest, and strongest man to ever enter the palace, and presented him with two gold rings in appreciation. Barnum's traveling acts were said to be mostly a sham, but one that made people think twice had been Angus and Tom, to which they could not deny the sheer might of the strong man by contrast to the tiny man, and a journalist by the name of Michael McDougall even stated that Barnum had got it right with these two in an article he wrote in 1960. Of course, there were detractors and doubters from all over. I mean, who wouldn't challenge this guy? One of the greatest people to fail in besting Angus was suffered by a fighter named Red McManus. 
Full of bravado, McManus came to Cape Breton and talked trash about Angus. He called him a coward and a phony when the giant held back from accepting his challenge, but eventually he heard enough talk and met McManus in a makeshift ring. They cordially shook hands and, well, that proved to be a swift end to the fight. As Angus clutched McManus' hand, the fighter screamed in agonizing pain and collapsed to his knees. The giant had crushed every bone in his hand. Ouch. Another challenge came from a wrestler who visited his hometown. Angus accepted the contest and, like his bout with McManus, made quick work of it. According to one newspaper account, he picked him up despite his 300 pounds of weight and hurled him over a nearby woodpile 10 feet high and 12 feet across the top. A final test of strength occurred on a boat where a man wagered that the giant couldn't lift the ship's anchor, which weighed about 2,100 pounds. According to one telling of the tale, he seized the anchor and, with very little apparent effort, put it on his shoulder. However, one of the barbs of the anchor caught in his shoulder as he was throwing it off, and the result was the giant was hurt very seriously, which he never fully recovered from. After touring many countries and entertaining the masses, Angus later returned home to Cape Breton and opened a mercantile business. He purchased at least seven properties, including a grist mill and a general store. Then, in the summer of 1863, he took a trip to the colonial capital of Halifax, where he had been planning to sell produce and purchase stock for his store that he would need for the winter season from the city's wholesalers. During the trip, he suddenly became seriously ill and was returned to St. Anne's, where his family moved him back to his parents' home. His original childhood bed was hastily lengthened and put up in their living room to provide for his care. The doctor's diagnosis was brain fever, where parts of the brain become inflamed, causing the patient to break out in a fever, although it was never determined what affliction caused this. Sadly, after a week of illness, Angus died peacefully in his sleep on August 8, 1863. The whole country mourned and he was buried in the English town cemetery alongside his parents, who were of average size. The size of Angus's burial mound dwarfs those of his mother and father. The custom-made coffin was enormous. James Donald Gillis, author of 1899's The Cape Breton Giant, a truthful memoir, said, In size, the coffin was a sight of a lifetime. He described it as being large enough to float three men across the Bay of St. Anne's. Angus left a legacy to be sure and lived on in English town for many years where his timber frame house sat on the edge of Kelly's Mountain overlooking St. Anne's Harbor. The structure with its massive door frame still stood, albeit in ruins, as late as the 1950s with the foundation being visible into the 1980s. Around 1900, the government of Nova Scotia replaced the family's original grave marker with a new one after the original one had fallen into disrepair. Some of Angus's original personal effects from his house, including a bed frame, clothes, and chair, were removed for preservation and displayed for many years during the mid-20th century at the nearby Gaelic College of Celtic Arts and Crafts. These artifacts were moved back to English Town after the giant McCaskill Museum was established in the late 1980s on a roadfront portion of Angus's former property by the Giant McCaskill Heirs Association. In addition to the collection from the Gaelic College, the museum in English Town also houses a more expanded collection of artifacts that have been maintained by family members. The Giant McCaskill Museum was also established in 1989 at Dunvegan on the Isle of Skye and is operated there by a community group, this museum having several replicated artifacts from the English Town Museum. It is managed by Pierre McCaskill, father of the street trials cycle rider Danny McCaskill. 
There was even a vessel that performed short trips christened the Angus McCaskill that became one of the busiest ferry crossings in Nova Scotia. So it is easy to see what kind of impact this behemoth of a man made on those around him. Becoming larger than life can be many things, but to accomplish that in character and in sheer mass is a rare accomplishment that should never be taken at face value, but should be cherished, admired, and used as a yardstick in how to treat others. Finally, time alone is a precious thing. But that is taken for granted so much that I doubt most people think twice about it. Imagine that every second of every day, you had to be around someone else. Hell, let's raise the stakes. Imagine having no choice in the matter that you had to be around said person every waking moment of your life or else you would die. Unsettling thought, isn't it? With this last tale, that is the case for these two women. Rosa and Josefa were born on January 30th, 1878 in Czechoslovakia and were joined at the lower part of the spinal column in a condition called pygopagus. They shared tissue and cartilage, but were also joined at thoracic vertebrae. It was that delicate fusion that negated any possibility of separation, and when their mother took them to Paris at the age of 13, doctors told her just that. The twins grew up healthy and active, moving around with ease. Rosa emerged as a stronger sister, and therefore was able to choose a direction and leave Josepha with no choice but to follow. Rosa was so controlling, she could actually think about walking, and Josepha would take the first step. It was in 1871 in Paris and London, where the twins began their career in professional exhibition billed as the Bohemian Twins. Depending what story you believe, until that point their mother was either adamantly against displaying her daughters for profit or limited their publicity to local fairs. But the twins themselves saw both cities as an opportunity to get out of their tiny village. They found a manager, learned to sing and play the xylophone, and began drawing crowds. At 15 they traveled to America to appear in the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago and made lots of contacts, money, and gained notoriety, although some was not as welcome as others. Like many conjoined performers, much was made of their differences in personality and tastes. Rosa was considered the sharper of the two. She was witty and talkative while Josepha was introverted. Physically, Rosa was the more dominant of the two sisters. Josepha was slightly more deformed than her sister, with her left leg being substantially shorter than the right. The pair was heavily sexualized and posters for their appearance at the Theatre Imperial de la Gatelle featured them with bared midriffs and tight corsets. As a result, the public conjectured on their sexual activity and the complications their physical condition posed, causing a lot of unrest between the twins. Despite a few social setbacks, the sisters were famous in the 1890s as they toured Europe and parts of America and, aside from dancing on the xylophone, became quite skilled on the violin and stunned crowds with their enthusiastic duets. However, by the turn of the 20th century, their popularity quickly evaporated due to poor management and overexposure, making their future look very bleak. But then their obscurity was shattered in 1909, when Rosa claimed to be pregnant. Controversy spread like wildfire and rekindled their celebrity status. Shortly after returning to Europe, while still quite young, the sisters wanted to marry, but it wasn't until 1910 that an opportunity presented itself, the year Rosa gave birth to a son. Franz, in Prague. The father wanted to marry Rosa, but her parents were not supportive, and the court wasn't either. It denied the marriage since the groom would be marrying two women, not one. Marrying Rosa would mean marrying Josepha, and that would be bigamy. 
The father, reportedly a captain in the German army, died in battle in 1917. To the public, the idea of these twins conceiving made no sense. Although the twins had separate reproductive organs, their physical proximity seemingly made any sexual encounter more of a menage a trois. The newspapers filled with rumor-laced articles, and some believed the twins were sex-crazed harlots, while others depicted Josepha as an unwilling victim. Rosa claimed she had only had intercourse once, and she refused to name the father. There was much speculation that their manager was the father, and it was said that he gave the girls 95,000 marks for three years to keep the duo quiet. Regardless of the paternity, on April 16, 1910, little Franz entered the world. As Franz grew, he joined the twins' traveling show as the son of two mothers, and with a renewed popularity, the three of them left Europe and appeared in the U.S. in 1922, only after being there a second time since 1893. The three set their sights on vaudeville and established a base in Chicago, but their dream of the American stage was cut short when Rosa fell ill with influenza. As Rosa recovered, Josepha became sick herself, and her illness soon overcame her. Doctors were uncertain of the diagnosis and shortly after being admitted into Chicago's West End Hospital on March 22, 1922, Rosa, sadly, fell into a coma. Then, out of nowhere, a brother named Frank appeared, and once Rosa also succumbed to a coma, Frank spoke for the sisters. Newspapers disagree on the final days of the twins, and some claim Frank would not allow any attempt at surgical separation, while others exclaim Rosa was adamant about remaining joined, or just as adamant about being separated. In short, lots of hearsay and speculation. One thing all journalists agree on, though, and that was Frank was a gold digger, who only had his eye on their fortune. On March 30th, 1922, Josepha died, with Rosa following her 12 minutes later. With her death, another media frenzy began around who was entitled to their fortune. Soon after they were laid to rest, the matter was a moot point, however, since it was discovered that the pair only had a savings of $400 between them instead of the rumored $200,000 buried on their farm in Czechoslovakia. The strange situation with this story is that it should have ended there, but there's a bit more to it, and it gets incredibly bizarre. Shortly before their death, a medium by the name of Carrie Hodecker of Welliston, Missouri, consulted her Ouija board and learned the first sister would die at 2.25 p.m. in 8 seconds central time. The press received a telegram of the prediction, which added, Operate at once as directed by Ouija board. The prophecy was only minutes off in its accuracy. Josepha died first at 2.35 p.m., with Rosa following minutes later. The Ouija's message was but a strange footnote to what was life full of strange wonders for Carrie, and was only taken seriously due to her earlier premonitions and predictions helping law enforcement find missing persons. It was never figured out how she came to her conclusions or accuracies before or after her death in 1926. At one point it was claimed that the baby boy was named after his father, a soldier named Franz Dvorak, and that Rosa married the soldier shortly before his death in 1917. However, there is no record of the marriage, nor did the man ever appear publicly with his family. Most likely, it was a story engineered to evoke sympathy and further attendance. As for Franz, it is known that he did spend time in an orphanage, and some believe that is where the boy originated from in the first place, ultimately used as a prop to gain attention and re-establish the twins in the limelight. The current whereabouts of Franz are unknown, fading into the annals of history after the sisters died. There still lingers much intrigue around their lives, but any answers to many questions have likely been taken to their graves. 
To some, solitude is magical, while others would go mad. The old saying, everybody needs somebody sometimes, is merely a suggestion for most. But remember that it is mandatory to a select few, and they would relish the chance to be by themselves if only Mother Nature hadn't cursed their chances. And so at last, we come to the end of our Come One, Come All theater of morbid wonders. Thank you so much for supporting this program. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow me for news about the podcast on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod. I also have merchandise on TeePublic under the Nightcap Nebula Podcast, such as t-shirts and mugs for when you want to pour out some hot cocoa and get cozy by the fire as you listen to my segments. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.